Well, today we gather together to celebrate Easter, to celebrate what Jesus did, what God did through the events of the Easter story, that, when, that with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God was up to something big in the Easter story. And we often talk about this as the greatest story ever told or the greatest story forever told. But I wanna suggest today that it's even better than that. That this is not just a story. This isn't a story. This is something that happened, that Jesus died and that he raised from the dead. And what happened is absolutely earth-shaking, soul-saving, life-changing. And the events of Easter, the events, the fact that this happened makes this so life-changing and game-changing for every single one of us. Now today, I titled the message Out of the Shadows because there's a very specific aspect of the story of Easter and the events of Easter that I want us to focus in on today. And to understand the depths of the, of the Easter story, the events of the Easter story, to understand the depths of that story, we actually have to go back nearly 2,000 years to another story to, uh, to unpack something that shows us the depth of God's love for us displayed in Jesus on the cross. We're gonna to begin today in Genesis chapter 22. It says this, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the on the mount, one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, full stop for a second. Abraham had lived his entire life following God, trusting God, that God would one day provide a son, who would one day provide an heir, and that God, he was following God. He literally followed God where God said, go, 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 go. I'm not even telling you where this is ultimately going to end up. And Abraham trusted, and Abraham had lived 100 years until God finally fulfilled the promise of an heir. And after 100 years, God finally fulfilled the promise of a son when Isaac was born. This son was not just Abraham's only son. He was the fulfillment of God's promise. And now after all of that, after years and years and years of faithfulness, God decides to test Abraham one more time. The funny thing though, is that we're told this is a test. Abraham was not told this is a test. We are told this is a test, but Abraham wasn't told this is a test. So right off the bat, we know this is a test. All Abraham knew was what was happening right in front of him, that the God that he had trusted in, the God that he had followed, was now asking for the sacrifice, was asking for the offering of his one and his only son, the fulfillment of the promise that God had made. This is an incredibly difficult like I would say dangerous, like crazy hard decision that Abraham is forced to make. It's an unbelievable request. But there's one aspect of this that makes this really interesting because it begins to sound a lot like the events of Easter. Like, are you hearing it already? How this sounds like a little bit of foreshadowing of the events of Easter. Who is Abraham told to give as an offering? There literally is the language, his only son. Interesting. If you look at a map, also, if you look at a map of the ancient world and a map of the land that became Israel and the area that's described here, what you find is this exact area. This is the exact area that God sent Abraham to make this sacrifice, the mountainous region of Moriah, is the exact same place where, where ancient and modern Jerusalem would one day stand. This is the exact same region. Jerusalem did not exist as a city yet, but this region is the exact same region that would one day become Jerusalem. So to recap the story and this request so far, God the Father asked a father to take his one and only son, the promised son, to a hill near Jerusalem to sacrifice him as a sign of his devotion to God. 
This happened nearly 2,000 years before Jesus would ever walk the earth. But do you hear what I'd hear? Do you hear the similarities? Do you hear what sounds like it almost begins to be a little bit of foreshadowing of what would eventually happen with Jesus on the cross? It goes on to tell us this in verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. As crazy as it sounds, Abraham was going to go along with what God had requested. Abraham was going to answer the call of God. Again, as, as a dad, this bothers me. Uh, th- this, this makes me upset that Abraham, like, that Abraham was actually willing to sacrifice his only son. The son that he had hoped for for a hundred, for over, a, for a hundred years. The son that was finally the fulfillment of God's promise, that he was actually willing to sacrifice that son. I cannot even begin to wrap my, my mind about it. But here's what we find out about Abraham. Apparently, Abraham had discovered over the course of a hundred years of following God that if God asks something, God has a plan. That if God requests something, God has a plan. If God commands something, there's a reason for the command. And as difficult and crazy and as terrible as this sounds, Abraham believed that God knew what God was up to and that God had a plan and a reason for this crazy, difficult, terrible request. Verse four, go on to tell us this. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Now, we don't know if Abraham was just simply trying to hide this from his servants. We don't know exactly what's going on with, with when, when Abraham says, but do, you, but do you notice Abraham says, we will go and we will return. I mean, maybe again, maybe he's just trying to hide it from his servants, you know, because he figured if they'll really figure out that something is a foul, if, if I say we will go and I will return, we don't, we don't know exactly what Abraham thought there. But do you notice he says, we will go and we will return. We will go and we will return. It's almost as if Abraham believes something. It's as if he, if he believes that God is doing something in the middle of this, that God would come through, that God has, has a thing where this, where what this looks like is not ultimately what this is. This looks like a defeat. This looks like a failure. This looks like God taking away what God has given. But maybe, just maybe, God is still up to something different than what everyone sees. And then there's another interesting thing here. Do you notice the wood for the sacrifice? It was placed on Isaac. It was placed on the son. Again, it's almost like in every aspect of this story, this is giving a glimpse of what would happen 2,000 years later. We go on in verse seven, it says this, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac had noticed that something is off. Isaac had noticed that every other time they had gone to make a sacrifice to God, they brought animals with them. They had taken animals for the sacrifice. Abraham, Isaac knew, Isaac was old enough to know that if you're going to make a sacrifice and an offering to God, you need a sacrifice. And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked off together. Again, Isaac notices that something is off. You know, again, we've done sacrifices before and every time we do a sacrifice, we bring animals. And again, we don't know if Abraham is still trying to shield him from what's happening. We don't know if Abraham is still trying to, you know, just hide this from his eyes and wait until they get there to, to reveal what's ultimately going on. But he says, you know, like, hey, you know, Isaac, he doesn't say, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. He says, Isaac, the Lord will provide 
the lamb. The Lord will provide the lamb. The Lord will provide the lamb. Again, he's placing in his hope in that this is not what it seems, that God may be up to something that I don't understand yet. So it says this in verse nine. It says this, when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And then it says this, he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Note, Isaac does not fight his father. The son was willing to be bound and placed on the altar because he trusted his father. Again, are you hearing this? Are you seeing this? That Isaac went along with this plan because he trusted his father as his father was trusting his God. Again, I wouldn't advise this today, but this is Isaac trusting his father and going along with his father as his father is trusting God. Then it says this in verse 10, then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. In other words, Abraham, this was a test and you passed with flying colors. You may have passed a little too well, Abraham. The fact that you've got the knife in your hand, you've got the boy on the altar, like you passed, buddy, like you passed. You, and, what, and what God had seen was that, God, that Abraham trusted God, that there was nothing Abraham was gonna hold back from his God, that everything that God had placed in his hands was, was open and willing to be given back to God. Then then it says this in verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Just as Abraham said, and just as Abraham had believed, God provided the offering. God provided the offering. And this place, this mountain, this hill in Jerusalem would forever be known as the place where the Lord provides. Interesting story, isn't it? I mean, crazy story, isn't it? Like this is one of those crazy stories that makes people read the Bible and go, what on earth is going on? on, that God would test someone this way. I mean, this is a crazy, crazy, crazy story. See, we hear it, we think God is asking too much or testing a man who had already been tested and he pushed him too far. But God didn't want to see the boy sacrificed. God had a plan all along. God wanted to see Abraham's heart. But here's what happened in this story. God tests Abraham by asking him for a sign of devotion that God knew was too much for anything, any father to be asked. Let me, let me say this this way for, in relation to, to the story as we talk about it today. God knew it was too much to ask that a father sacrifice his son as a sign of devotion to God. Let me say that again and let me say it very clearly. Let me emphasize a few points there. God knew it was too much to ask that a father would sacrifice his only son as a sign of devotion to God. The good news of Easter, the good news of Easter and why I wanted to start here is that 2,000 years later on the very same hill, in the very same place, God had a much different idea and a much better plan on the same hill. It was too much. It was too much to ask an earthly father to sacrifice his only son as a sign of devotion to God. But on the same hill, in the same place, 2,000 years later, 
it was not too much for our Heavenly Father to sacrifice His only Son as a sign of His devotion to relationship with us. Let me say that again. That's the whole point. That's why I wanted to start where we started today. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years after the events of Abraham and Isaac on a mountain, and 2,000 years ago in the very same place, it was not too much to ask our Heavenly Father to sacrifice His only Son as a sign of His devotion to a relationship with us. The, the events of Easter begin with Jesus entering Jerusalem as a celebrated king. Jesus lived among us. He lived among us sinlessly. He taught people what God is like. He showed people what God is like. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He provided food for thousands and he walked on water. He was the greatest thing that anyone had ever seen. He was quite literally heaven come to earth. But because human imperfection could not recognize and handle perfection, the religious leaders of the day made plans to do away with Jesus. So they gave Judas Iscariot 30 pieces of silver as a payment so that Judas would betray Jesus and hand Jesus over to them. And surprisingly, when they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus did not resist and told his followers not to resist. Jesus stood trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And when he was accused, he did not attempt to defend himself. He, he was accused of rebellion, accused of claiming to be a king, and his only remarks that he was in fact a king, but not of this world. After Pilate declared that he found no fault with Jesus, he gave the crowd a choice. He would free Jesus or he would free a man named Barabbas, who was a violent man who had led a failed revolution against Rome. The crowd chose Barabbas and demanded that Jesus be executed by death on the cross. Jesus would be beaten. Jesus would be whipped. Jesus would wear a crown of thorns and Jesus would be hung and nailed to a cross. Jesus would carry his cross because as with Isaac, the wood for the sacrifice would be placed on the back of the son. Jesus would be led to a hill in Jerusalem because as with Isaac, that's the place where the Lord would provide the sacrifice. Jesus would not resist because as with Isaac, the sacrifice required the son's willingness to trust the father. So Jesus was hung on a cross. He hung for three hours. He hung there for hours until he breathed his last breath and he bled his last drop. And then after shouting, it is finished, he gave up his spirit and died. And with his last breath, the heavens shook, the earth quaked, the sun went dark for three hours, and the veil in the whole, most holy place in the temple was torn in two. And if you have ever wondered what happened on Good Friday and why would we ever call Good Friday good, here is what happened with Jesus' death on the cross. At the cross, God displayed the depth of his love for you. At the cross, on the cross, God displayed the depth of his love for you and he displayed the depth of his love for me. At the same place where God revealed that it was too much to ask any earthly father to, act, to sacrifice his son as a sign of devotion to God, God showed that he was willing to sacrifice his perfect son as the ultimate display of his devotion to a relationship with you and a relationship with me and a relationship with everyone, everywhere, for all of time. That's what God did at the cross. That's what Jesus did at the cross. That's what Jesus did with his bloodshed at the cross. That's what Jesus did with his every breath given at the cross. That's what Jesus did when he said, it is finished. That's what was finished. He had finally displayed the ultimate act of God's love for you and God's love for me. 
See, the very reason Jesus came to earth and the reason he went to the cross was that sin stood in between us and God. Sin was and still is the only thing that can separate us from a relationship with God. A price had to be paid by someone for us to be in right relationship with God. God knew that if you paid the price, it would be justice, but it would not establish a relationship. It would just be making things square. But so God sent his own son, Jesus, who came as one of us, lived among us, and died for all of us, paying the price for our sin so that sin would no longer stand between us and God. Jesus would stand between us and God. And Jesus would stand as the connection between us and God, as the way to a relationship with our heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul when he, when, he, when he wrote back to a church in, in, in the city of Colossae, when he wrote his letter that we know as Colossians, here's how he explained what Jesus did on the cross. In Colossians chapter one, we're told this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything, reconciled everything. If you're watching at home, maybe you wanna type in the chat bar right now, everything, that Jesus reconciled everything to himself. He made peace. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. God made peace between heaven and earth through the suffering and the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. God made the full and final sacrifice when he laid down his own son. God made the full and final sacrifice to pay the price for your sin and my sin. God made the full and final sacrifice when he sent the best of heaven to deal with the worst that humanity had done so that there could be peace, so that there could be a relationship between humanity and our heavenly Father. And as if that, that wasn't enough, Paul got more specific. He said this, this includes you, which Paul could have stopped there and said, God made peace with humanity. God made peace with everything. God reconciled everything to himself. And this includes you. And if he stopped there with what you know about yourself and what I know about myself, the fact that this includes me and this includes you, that's all Paul has to say. That this could include me, that making peace with everything includes me and it includes you and God reconciled everything and that includes you and it includes me. That's amazing. But Paul would go on to describe you just in case you don't know you that well. He said, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single thought. Every one of us is far away from God without Jesus. Every single one of us without Jesus is far away from God. The best of humanity is far away from God without Jesus. The best person that you can think of is far away from God if it's not for Jesus. The worst of humanity, and you know some people that you have in mind right now, the worst of humanity without Jesus is far away from God. That Through our own actions and our own choices, every one of us has, have sinned and no sin to be a part of our story. And as long as our sin is part of our story without Jesus, we are far away from God. We have disconnected from our heavenly father. But because of Jesus, because because of the work of the cross, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you, 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 no matter how far away from God your sin has taken you, you, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did for you, you can stand in the presence of your heavenly father. And what's true of you is what's true that Paul wrote 
about what Jesus has made you. That you can stand in the presence of your heavenly Father, holy, without blame, blameless, without a single fault. That that's what is true of you. Not because that's what's true of you, but because that's true of what Jesus has made you. Not because of who you are, but because that's who of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus makes us right with God. I wrote this in my notes as I was preparing, as I was reading this text. I wrote this down and said this. It says a great deal about me that I am so sinful that someone had to die to free me from my sin. It says even more about Jesus that he willingly died to free me from my sin. It says a great deal about me that I'm so sinful that someone had to die to free me from my sin. But it says even more about Jesus that he willingly died to free me from my sin. See, that's wonderful news. That's amazing news. That's amazing grace. That's amazing love. That because of Jesus, we can have the forgiveness of our sin. Because of Jesus, our sin has been washed away. The debt has been paid. The gap between us and God has been closed by Jesus, has been crossed by Jesus. There is a connection available between us and our Heavenly Father because of Jesus and through Jesus. That is what makes Good Friday so good. That's why the death of Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to you until three days later. After, at the cross, the incredible love of our Heavenly Father fulfilled what had been foreshadowed. At the cross, the incredible love of our Heavenly Father fulfilled what had been foreshadowed. And you know what's even better than Good Friday? That three days later, something even better would happen. We haven't even gotten to Easter yet. That comes next. The events of Easter morning are recorded in John chapter 20. John, recording the events, John who walked into the empty tomb, John writes this in John chapter 20. says this, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John himself. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. The first person, the first person to be aware of the resurrection was a woman named Mary Magdalene. But because no one was expecting the resurrection, even the closest followers of Jesus, because no one was expecting Jesus to actually raise from the dead, when she found no body, she assumed like most of us would that the body had been stolen and moved. So she goes to find Peter and John to let them know what has happened. The story goes on in this, verse 3, it says this, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had, been, that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Which seems like an odd thing to do at that time. But here's what we have. We have Mary, Peter, and John at the tomb, at the empty tomb. John runs faster than Peter to get there, which John really wanted everyone to know that he was faster than Peter. Peter was the first to walk into the empty tomb. And they realize and they wonder if maybe, just maybe, Maybe, just maybe, Jesus had actually done and had in fact pulled off the thing that he had talked about his entire ministry. He had predicted his death, predicted his resurrection, and maybe, just maybe, he had actually pulled it off. 
The story goes on and we're told this. In verse 19, it says this, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Hey, the Jewish leaders took out our guy, took out our leader. They're probably coming for us next. And they moved his body, either they moved his body or he raised from the dead. But one way or another, someone's going to be looking for us. It says this, Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you. And I think that means Jesus is absolutely hilarious. If you're in a locked room and a guy walks through the door who you saw die three days ago, there is no peace. Everyone's going, what in the world is happening? And Jesus starts with, peace be with you. Like, we don't have any peace. What is going on? What are you doing here? What is happening? Is that like, it's, it's the craziest thing. Jesus says, peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Here's the headline. Here's the headline. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That Good Friday is good because our sins are forgiven. Easter is good news because Jesus is alive. The end of the story is not Jesus's death bringing about the forgiveness of our sins and we get a fresh start and we get a clean slate and that's the end of it and we just got to do our best and try harder and do and do do more of, of what we just you know should should naturally know how, know to do. A new story actually begins for you and for me with Jesus's resurrection inviting us to follow Jesus into the new life that he brought out of the grave. A resurrection life, real life, life with the resurrection power of Jesus at the center of it all. Life victorious over sin, victorious over shame, victorious over the enemy, victorious over our past, victorious over any addiction, victorious over everything. Victorious over everything. That is what Jesus' resurrection has invited you into. In trying to explain what this means, here's what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 6, he said this, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. That's the good news of Good Friday. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with Since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. That's the good news of Easter. The good news of Good Friday is that we are no longer slaves to sin. The good news of Easter is that we are alive in him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus. Paul wanted the Roman Christians to know that not only were their sins forgiven, it's better than that. They have been given new life, real life, resurrection, abundant life, the kind of life that overcomes sin, death, hell, and the grave, and that what was true for them is true for you, and what was true then is true for you now. That the resurrection... The resurrection is an invitation to new life with Christ. The resurrection is an invitation to new life with Christ. You're invited and I'm invited into a new life 
with Christ. That when Jesus came out of the grave, he brought new life for you and he brought new life for me. And because of the death of Jesus that took away our sins and washed away our sins and cleansed us of our sins, we can stand in the new life that Jesus has for us without sin, without shame, without the past, without addiction, without any of that stuff because Jesus overcame it all. We are dead to sin and we are alive in him. That's the news. That's the good news of Easter, that the resurrection is an invitation into new life in Christ. And what you're invited into and what I'm invited into is exactly what I just said. You're invited to a life that is dead to sin and alive in him. Dead to sin and alive in him. In other words, you're dead to a way of life that kills you. You're dead to a way of life that naturally separates you from God and separates you from others. You are dead to sin. When you die to sin, when you you follow and trust in Jesus Christ and in his death to pave the way to put to death your sin, you follow Jesus into a way of life that is the opposite of of the way of life that kills everything in you, that kills everything it touches. You are dead to sin. So trust in Jesus Christ in his death that paid the price for your sins, that put death to death, that put sin to death. You are dead to sin when you are alive in the new resurrection life of Jesus. You are dead to sin. You are dead to a way of life that kills you. You've put to death that old way of life. And now you are alive in him, alive and victorious over everything. It doesn't mean you won't face obstacles or or challenges. It means you'll face them with the strength and the overcoming life that Jesus has for you and that Jesus has for me. You'll have the strength to face them and the strength to overcome every obstacle and every struggle and everything that stands in your way. And so here's the thing. Today, today is a day to accept that invitation. Today's a day to, with open hands, with open heart, with open mind, with open ears, with open eyes, to accept the invitation into the resurrection life of Jesus. Today is a day for you maybe to step out of the shadows to step out of the shadows because what was foreshadowed has been fulfilled because of the Father's great love for you and the Father's great love for me. Because your sin and your shame and your past have been dealt with one time for all by Jesus on the cross. Because peace has been made for you. Because God has reconciled everything, including you, to himself. God has made a relationship possible with you. And it's time to step out of the shadows into the new life that Jesus has for you and that he has for me. And so for you, wherever you're watching from, today may just be the day for you to step out of the shadows and into the light and to accept the invitation into the resurrection life that Jesus has for you. That maybe today you would say, you know, I have had enough of where I take me. I have ended up in the places that I never wanted to be. I've ended up a person that I never wanted to be. I've ended up knowing that I'm far from God, but not knowing how to make myself right with God. Not knowing how to feel at peace between my heavenly father and me. And today, if that's you, it's time to trust in Jesus. It's time to trust in the father's love displayed through Jesus on the cross and displayed through Jesus's resurrection life, bringing new life for you. That's what Jesus did. It's time to to trust the resurrection life. It's time to be dead to sin and alive in him. And so today, if you would like to make that decision, maybe you could like the video right now. Maybe you could click the link to let us know that you're making a decision to follow Christ right now. But today, as we close, I'm gonna simply pray a prayer that I would love for you to pray along with me. Maybe it's that you would repeat it where you are. Maybe it's that you would type it in the chat. I don't know how you wanna respond to this, but I'm just gonna simply pray a prayer of salvation a prayer of trusting our heavenly father and what he's done for us through Jesus on the cross and through Jesus coming out of the grave. Let's pray together today. Heavenly father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you that on the cross, 
he paid for my sin. He paid for our sin. Thank you that because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We are made clean. We are made blameless. You view us without a single fault. And God, thank you for Jesus' resurrection. Thank you for the new life that is not just figuring out how to do it a little bit better and be a little bit cleaner and be a little bit stronger, but thank you for the new life that Jesus brought out of the grave. Thank you for resurrection life. Thank you for overcoming life. Thank you for real life with the resurrection at the center of everything. Thank you that we can stand before you because our sins are forgiven and we can live with you because we follow Jesus into new life. We trust in Jesus' death. We trust in Jesus' resurrection to make us new and to make us right with you. Thank you, God, for doing that. Thank you for Easter. Thank you that it is not just a story. Thank you that it's so much better than that. Thank you that it is events that actually happened in history and we can lean our lives on that and know that it's secure and know that we're secure in you. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.